Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 358, King Hartha Canute. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Aaron, Elizabeth, and Anthony for signing up already. Today's story starts in 1039. It's a big year, and a lot has happened to get us here. So let's recap really quickly. The death of Canute caused a cascade of consequences that reached up to the tip of Scotland and even into the continent. This was an empire that was crumbling just as it had been born, and the kingdoms that were within it and neighboring it were undergoing a rapid series of changes as that empire came crashing down. Across the Channel, in France, Duke William the Bastard was ruling over Normandy. And by 1039, he was about 11 years old, and he'd already been ruling Normandy for about a third of his life, having inherited the duchy when he was merely seven years old, when his father, Duke Robert, a rival of Canute's, had died. And it turned out that coming into adolescence with nearly unlimited power was not doing much to improve his personality. Stick a pin in that one. Across the Irish Sea, in Ireland, the battle for Dublin was on. Citric Silkbeard had just lost the kingdom to the forces of Echmark Ragnelson. However, Ivor Mac Aralt and Thorfinn were proving to be a challenge to his power. And as the kingdom changed hands over and over again, it became ever more destabilized. In Scotland, King Duncan was carrying out his raid of Durham, and it was a raid that would fail. Then... Less than a year later, he'd make the mistake of going into Murray, and like many Scottish kings before him, this would be the last mistake he would ever make. And in this case, when he met his end, it was likely at the hands of Macbeth. In Wales, King Iago of Gwyneth was killed, reportedly by his own men, and his young son, Kinnan, who was likely only a toddler, was spirited off into Dublin and to exile. Into this vacuum was the rising power of Northwest Wales in the form of Gruffith ap Llywelyn, and he stepped forward and claimed the throne of Gwyneth. Now, it isn't clear whether or not he had a hand in the death of Iago, but given what we heard about last week, we can make a few guesses. And Gruffith's expanding power wasn't appreciated by his English neighbors. So just after his ascension to the throne of Gwyneth in 1039, we're told that a Mercian army marched into Powys. It was led by Edwin, the brother of Earl Leofric of Mercia, and that meant that Edwin was a close relative of one of the most powerful members of the Witan. In fact, Earl Leofric was so powerful that he had directly challenged the power of Queen Emma during the height of her influence, and he'd actually convinced the nobility to select Harold Harefoot as king instead of Emma's preferred son, Harthacanute. So this Mercian family had serious influence in England, and they were picking a direct fight with Gruffith at Llywelyn, and Leofric's own brother was leading the charge. Unfortunately, we're not told specifically why this conflict began, nor what the purpose of this march was. We're not even told what actions the Mercians took while they were in Welsh lands. All we're told is that King Gruffith raised the armies of Powys and Gwyneth in response, and then he marched them to Riddy Gross 
which is a lovely place of rolling hills, leafy trees, and babbling streams. And there, Gruffith laid an ambush. Edwin and the Mercians were taken completely by surprise. And in the battle that followed, large numbers of Englishmen, including Edwin himself, were killed. And with this victory, Gruffith's position was secure. So in 1039, he was turning his attention to one of the lost kingdoms that his father had once ruled. Devid. Back in England, King Harold Harefoot was doing the hard work of ruling the kingdom. And this had been an unlikely turn of events for him. When Canute had died, his wife, Queen Emma, had tried to place her son, Hartha Canute, on the throne of England. And she'd made this attempt with the support of Canute's second-in-command, the powerful Earl Godwin of Wessex. And that should have ended the matter right then and there. I mean, those two working together should have secured the position for Hartha Canute. But there was a problem. Hartha Canute was already ruling in Denmark, and apparently he had no interest in traveling to England. His hands were full thanks to the power struggle that he was engaged in with King Magnus of Norway, who was the son of King Olaf II. However, Canute's other son, Bialf Gifu, Harold Harefoot, was on hand, and he was living in Mercia, and the Earl of that region, the powerful Earl Leofric, made his power play, and he secured the throne for Harold, and in doing so, he also clipped Emma's wings. And immediately upon taking the throne, King Harold used his authority to seize the royal treasury, wresting it back from Emma. The Dowager Queen's power, which had already been damaged, was now fully collapsing. And while her son was king in Denmark, the fact was that her only real protection in England at this point came from her ally, Earl Godwin of Wessex, who appears to have been leading the faction that supported the claim of her son, Hartha Canute. Were it not for Godwin, Hartha Canute's claims probably would have been tossed out right then and there, and Emma probably would have been shipped off to Normandy or Denmark. But instead, the Dowager Queen was allowed not only to remain in the English capital of Winchester, but to actually govern it on behalf of her son, King Hartha Canute of Denmark. But the fact was that someone else's son was sitting on the throne of England, and Emma still had other sons she could turn to. And while they were the sons of Athelred Unred, and they were in Normandy, they were still the sons of a king of England. And sure enough, it wasn't long before Norman ships were carrying the Athelings across the channel. And that didn't go well. Edward survived the voyage, but her other son, Alfred, was met by Earl Godwin and the men of Wessex. And the Atheling was captured and blinded. He died of his injuries shortly thereafter. Now, officially, Emma blamed King Harold for the death, though the praise of Queen Emma does seem to have been written with an eye on politics. And while it might not have been politically convenient, Godwin's involvement in the death of her son can't have been missed by the Dowager Queen. And given Emma's previous lack of interest in her sons by Athelred, I suspect that specifically it wasn't the death that irked her so much. It's more likely that she expected Godwin's support in what was an obvious invasion for the throne. And then Godwin answered the call of the king instead. Now, of course, I don't know what else Emma could have expected. I mean, new King Harold Harefoot was young, popular, and increasingly powerful. And conversely, Hartha Canute was foreign and couldn't even be persuaded to step foot in England. It's also likely that England was getting a bit war-weary by this point, 
and no one had the stomach for a grueling civil war. So Godwin flipping sides here makes perfect sense to me. And for the nobility of England, this latest venture was the last straw. Emma and her sons had finally worn out all of their goodwill. England was done with this f***ing family, and Godwin wasn't going down with the ship. Following that failed Norman crossing, the English nobility declared Harold Harefoot the sole king of England. Hartha Knut had no claim on England anymore. And then, according to the Chronicle, they drove Emma out of the country. She fled to Flanders. And there, in her extended cousin's estate, she tried to persuade her son Edward to fight for the throne of England. Edward refused. If Emma wanted England, her only hope was in her other son, Hartha Knut. But as I mentioned before, King Hartha Knut of Denmark and King Magnus of Norway were locked in a power struggle over Scandinavia. You see, Hartha Knut wanted to reunite Denmark with Norway and start rebuilding his father's collapsed empire. And King Magnus of Norway actually wanted to do the same thing, but with him in charge, which is why he initiated a campaign against Denmark. And so that brings all of our timelines up to 1039. With Emma stuck in Flanders, pinning all of her hopes on her son, Hartha Knut, who was currently embroiled in an international conflict with King Magnus the Good. Now, to be clear, we don't know precisely when the war between Norway and Denmark officially began. But tensions between the kingdoms had been rising for quite some time. And there were a lot of dynasties that were getting dragged into this mess. And now that the conflict had fully spilled out into the open, things were rapidly getting worse. Even the family of mighty Jarl Ulf was getting involved now. Now, as you might remember, Jarl Ulf had made a serious mark on the history of England and Denmark during his life. But by this point in history, he was dead. And his English-born son, Swain Estrithson, was taking up the family business of upsetting the apple cart. And Swain was a tall, muscular man. Though looking at his skeleton, we also see indications that he probably had a limp. But most importantly... Swain was a powerfully influential figure in the region, as he was the grandson of Swain Forkbeard through his mother's line. Another mark in his favor was that King Hartha Knut was his first cousin. And on top of all of that, Swain had grown up learning how to be a war leader while serving under King Anund of Sweden. Swain Estrithson had all the makings of a king himself, which is probably why his cousin, King Hartha Knut, made him a Jarl. Keep your friends close and keep your grasping cousins closer. And once fighting broke out between Norway and Denmark, Jarl Swain fought fiercely on behalf of Hartha Knut. But in his most notable battle, King Magnus prevailed. Swain did survive the exchange, but his loss impacted the national morale. And as these losses racked up and the exhaustion of war set in, the noblemen for both sides began to work behind the scenes to resolve this conflict. And eventually, they convinced kings Hartha Knut and Magnus to meet at the borderlands between their kingdoms. And there, the nobles hoped that the kings would come up with terms to end this conflict. And the two kings didn't disappoint. Hartha Knut and Magnus ended the war on the condition that, as they both believed they had rightful claims on each other's titles, they would now be each other's heir. And that sounds reasonable, 
all the way until you realize that they just resolved a war by entering into a tontine. Because why not? Nothing bad has ever come from a tontine. And stick a pin in that one. It's going to change the course of British history. But back in Flanders, Queen Emma was probably not all that concerned about the tontine. Her son Harthacnut was young and powerful, and she was fixing to make him even more powerful by placing him on the throne of England. Once that was done, Norway would be his in no time. And Harthacnut likely saw it the same way. So now, with his war with Norway over, the king in a fleet of ten ships set sail for Bruges to meet with his mother. Once there, they made plans for invasion, and they began to gather ships for the conquest of England. The 22-year-old King Harthacnut was going to do as his mother asked and bring war upon his 24-year-old half-brother. And he had gathered fully 60 ships to do it. Then, on March 17th of 1040, while King Harold Harefoot was at Oxford, he died. Which seems like an important event, you know? I mean, you've got a king in his 20s who's been on the throne for about four years and who's preparing to face off with an invasion from Denmark. Surely his sudden death would be the sort of thing that you'd expect the scribes to explain, right? Well, paper's not free, you know. These lines cost money. And sure, they could have mentioned how the king died, but then they wouldn't have been able to tell us that, quote, this year Archbishop Edsey went to Rome, end quote. Cool, guys. Thanks for that. And the omission of how King Harold died is really suspect. Now, granted, English kings did have a habit of dying young, but it's not like this guy was from the House of Wessex. I mean, those guys were sickly as hell, but he was from the line of Canute. Furthermore, there are quite a few kings who'd been murdered in this story so far. I mean, it's not like regicide was a serious taboo in Britain, or if it was, I think it was the fun kind of taboo. So what happened here? Well, the best that we've got for explaining this is a charter discussing some lands at Sandwich. This document claims that Harold had seized the church's lands there, and in doing so, had invited divine judgment down upon himself. We're told that the monks had approached the king about a land dispute because St. Augustine's Abbey was claiming the local toll, and the monks of Christ Church weren't pleased about that. But the scribes add, almost as an afterthought, that as this meeting progressed, the king was laying down and was getting darker as they spoke. Which sounds like illness, maybe. Or maybe poison. Or bleeding out. Or maybe they're just describing someone who's completely checked out and getting more irritated with each passing moment. I know I've grown darker the more I've listened to certain people. So really, who knows what happened to King Harold Harefoot? But considering that he was in his mid-twenties, it wasn't old age. And that's not the only thing that makes Harold's sudden death unusual. There's also the fact that he was buried at Westminster Abbey. And I know that sounds normal now, because Westminster is the final resting place for quite a few kings and queens now. But that wasn't the case in the early 11th century. In fact, as far as royal burials go at Westminster Abbey, at this point, the only thing we have we can point to is a medieval legend of King Sabert of Essex, who's credited with founding a monastery on that site in the 600s, and then was later buried there with his wife. However, that's just a legend, and it's likely untrue. And generally, the abbey is believed to have its origins in the 10th century, not the 7th. Therefore, 
Harold was likely the first royal to be buried at Westminster Abbey, which actually means that this burial predates the current abbey that many of you know and some of you have visited. But the timing of Westminster Abbey isn't the most important part here. It's the fact that he wasn't interred at any of the other traditional sites for royalty. That's what's strange, and it makes me wonder if this is a reflection of the political support that he had, or lack thereof, from many of the major dynasties in England towards the end of his life. And considering that he was involved in the death of Alfred Atheling, who was a member of the House of Wessex, it's not hard to imagine that there might have been some bad dynastic blood. The other thing that makes Harold's untimely death seem unusual is the fact that immediately after his death, an invitation was sent to King Hartha Canute of Denmark, asking him to come and claim the throne of England. That was a rapid change of position for the English nobility. While King Harold had been living, the English elite had killed Hartha Canute's half-brother, Alfred, and they'd done so to protect Harold's hold on the throne. They'd also declared that Hartha Canute had forfeited his claim on England and had even driven his mother Emma into exile. But only a handful of years later, King Harold had met an early death, and now at least a portion of the English nobility were asking for Harthacnut to come and reign over them. And it's possible that all of this was just an awkward coincidence. But considering that much of Emma's time in England involved palace intrigue and factional politics, this really does give me the impression that Emma still had allies in England, and they had been working this entire time to get her dynasty back in power. It also appears that Emma and Harthacanute had learned a few things in the meantime. When Alfred Atheling had made the crossing into England, it really didn't go as planned. And it's possible that he'd actually come at the request of some members of the nobility, perhaps even Godwin himself. So considering how that went, this time they weren't taking any chances. I mean, they had all these ships, so they might as well use them. So in the summer of 1040, at around the same time that Macbeth was finishing off King Duncan and claiming Scotland for himself, King Harthacanute of Denmark and the Dowager Queen Emma set sail for England, accompanied by a fleet of 60 ships packed with warriors. And seven days before midsummer, on June 17th of 1040, they landed on the coast of Sandwich. And I wonder how Earl Godwin of Wessex was feeling about all this. When he sided with King Harold against Queen Emma, perhaps even going so far as being the guy who killed her son, Alfred, that was probably the smart move at the time. Her power had been waning while Harold's was on the rise, and Godwin had a dynasty to consider. But now, that had all been turned on his head. Harold was dead, and the leader of the faction that placed him on the throne, Earl Leofrich, had recently suffered a defeat at the hands of King Gruffith, resulting in the death of Leofric's own brother. And now Emma was marching up the sand with the king of Denmark at her side, accompanied by a huge Danish army. Furthermore, based on the language of the Chronicle, it seems that Harthacanute and Emma had specific members of the Witan who were supporting their claim, who the Chronicle calls his advisors. And I can't imagine that any of this was a welcome sight for Godwin, nor any of the other nobles who'd taken prominent roles in driving Emma out of the kingdom. But sometimes life comes at you fast. The Chronicle and John of Worcester both tell us that there was no organized resistance to the arrival of this Danish force. And soon, most of the English accepted Harthacanute as their king. But the Chronicle adds 
that those advisors we spoke about, quote, severely paid for it, end quote, implying that their scheme to bring over the king of Denmark had hurt them on both a political and a financial level. You see, it turned out that that whole blinding and killing Alfred thing, not to mention the exile of Emma and the previous disinheriting of Harthacanut, had not gone unnoticed by their new king. Harthacanut was mad. He was also 22, and he'd been a king with near unlimited power since he was at least 17. And chances are, moderation wasn't something that he was all that accustomed to. John of Worcester tells us that, quote, his government did nothing worthy of his royal power, end quote. And that as soon as he began his reign, Harthacanut, seething over how he and his mother had been treated, summoned Bishop Elfrich of York, Earl Godwin of Wessex, Storr, the master of the king's household, Edric, the king's steward, Thrond, the captain of the guard, and other highly ranked English noblemen. And that strikes me as a very specific list, drawn from all over the kingdom, but also apparently targeted to those individuals who would have been closest to King Harold, perhaps even those who served in his privy council. And once summoned, the king gave them orders to go to London and exhume the body of their former liege, King Harold Harefoot. And then they were to throw his body into a sewer. Now, there weren't functioning underground sewers at this point in London, but there were drainage ditches. And both John and the Chronicle agree that it was into one of these ditches that the king's body was hurled. The Chronicle continues the tale, though, saying that afterwards, King Harthacanute ordered King Harold's body to be dragged out of the sewer and then chucked into the Thames. But the king still wasn't done. You see, it had been expensive to gather all these ships for the crossing to England. And the king felt that it would be unfair if the first thing he was asked to do upon taking the throne was to dip into his own pockets to pay for an army that had only been necessary due to the earlier brutality of the English nobility. I mean, if you think about it, this was their bill, not his. And if they didn't want to pay for this army, they shouldn't have killed his half-brother and then exiled his mom. So the Chronicle tells us that King Harthacanute of England and Denmark ordered the English to pay a tribute of eight marks for each steersman of his ships. But John of Worcester says, actually, it was eight marks for each rower and 12 for the steersman. Either way, this was bad, because given the scale of his fleet, this tribute would have required over 21,000 pounds of gold and silver. Now, the English were all too familiar with Danegelds by this point. But the fact that their new king was extracting such a sizable one when they'd actually invited him to take the kingdom in the first place... Well, that did their new 22-year-old liege no favors. His popularity also wasn't helped when the English economy was immediately thrown into a period of inflation. In fact, it was so bad that even the typically terse scribes of the Chronicle notes, quote, this year rose the cester of wheat to 55 pence and even further, end quote. Now, it really can't be overstated how shocking this entry is. Off the top of my head, I can't think of any previous entry in the Chronicle where the scribes mention how policies impacted the price of goods. So England was experiencing a gut-wrenching upheaval, and there was no one to blame for it but Harthacanute and Emma. The people were not pleased. And as the scribes note, the folks who advised Harthacanute and had invited him over were now paying a heavy price for their error. 
John adds that this tax was so heavy and so hated that hardly anyone even paid it. And even those who had been excited and eager for Hartha Canute's reign soon came to hate him. And that growing hate might account for why we're told that King Harold Harefoot's body was rescued from the Thames by a fisherman and then honorably buried in a London cemetery. Some sources even claim that he was actually buried at Oldminster alongside his father, Canute. But this new king's rage and impulsiveness also presented an opportunity for those who knew how to direct it to their own ends. Archbishop Elfrich of York must have known that he was in trouble with the king. I mean, it's not like digging up a body and chucking it into a sewer was an enviable task. It was pretty clearly a punishment, not just for King Harold, but for everyone involved in that grisly affair. Furthermore, it's pretty clear that the king's rage wasn't sated, nor did he seem to have much restraint on his anger. People might be mad at him over the things that he was doing, but the king didn't seem to care. And holy hell did that man ever hold a grudge. And so I'm sure it's a complete coincidence that Archbishop Elfrich decided to go before the king and tell him that actually he knew who was responsible for the death of his half-brother, Alfred Atheling. And it wasn't him, you see. It was Earl Godwin of Wessex and Bishop Liffing of Worcester. And if the king was interested, he could actually make a list of all the others who were involved as well. And the king was interested. But here's the thing with this. Elfrich probably was telling the truth here. The people that he mentioned were actually close allies of King Harold. And here's the other thing. So was Elfrich. In fact, there's a good chance that Archbishop Elfrich was the guy who crowned King Harold. So my guess is that what was happening here was what almost always happens when conspirators start to get leaned on. Someone flips. So Bishop Liffing, Earl Godwin and the unnamed co-conspirators were brought before the king. And as they walked in, there were probably some rather nasty glares being tossed in Elfrich's direction, because no one likes a snitch. The bishop, when he was brought before the king, claimed that he was only acting under orders of Hartha Canute's predecessor, King Harold Harefoot, and he was bound to follow those orders. So basically, he gave the Nuremberg defense. And like the Nazis at Nuremberg, Liffing found that actually it wasn't a very good defense. The king stripped Liffing of his bishopric and then handed those lands over to his new pal, Archbishop Elfridge. Nicely played Elfridge. Now, Earl Godwin was a bit more shrewd than Liffing. Apparently, he also told the king that he was acting under orders, but he also recognized who and what this king was. So in addition to the Nuremberg defense, he added what I like to call the Oprah defense. He basically told the king to look under his chair because everyone with a throne was getting a new boat. John of Worcester tells us that this boat was, quote, a galley of admirable workmanship with a gilded figurehead rigged with the best materials and manned with 80 chosen soldiers splendidly armed. Every one of them had on each arm a golden bracelet weighing six ounces and wore a triple coat of mail and a helmet partly gilt and a sword with a gilded hilt girt to his side, and a Danish battle axe inlaid with gold and silver hanging from his left shoulder. And in his left hand, he bore a shield, the boss and the studs of which were also gilt. And in his right hand, a lance called in the English tongue, Adagar, end quote. 
So yeah, like my parents, Godwin decided to rescue his relationship with a boat. And unlike my parents, it actually worked. Godwin was back in the king's good graces thanks to his fancy boat. And that was important because while the English kings typically ruled with the support and consent of the Witan and other leading nobles, that wasn't how the Danes did it. Danish kings were far more autocratic. And Harthacnut was a Dane, and he had no desire to change for these strange Englishmen. So Godwin's only chance was to make sure that he stayed in his good graces. And by giving him a fancy new boat and some cool new friends, Godwin had actually pulled it off. The king seemed pretty happy. But as Godwin stood before his new king, I wonder if he noticed how pale he was looking or how the king's cough was starting to sound pretty bad. If he did, I wonder if he was concerned. Probably not. I mean, a sick king, even a dying king, shouldn't be too much of a problem for the kingdom, especially this one. This king seemed like he was more trouble than he was worth. So if he died, that might be the best thing for everyone. Provided, of course, he didn't do something stupid, like bet the future of England in a tontine. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to sign up for membership, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.